Okay, I hope you came ready to hear the best sermon ever preached. I also hope you know me well enough to know it's not going to be the one I'm preaching, okay? But it is the one we're studying. We're starting this new sermon series today called The Upside Down Kingdom. And it is a sermon series looking at the best sermon ever preached. The one that Jesus preached early in his ministry to his followers and crowds in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. You'll recognize parts of it from the song we just sang. In fact, the first part covers just about the first 12 verses. And then beyond, we looked at into Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33 on the screen during that song. And it was a great reminder. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. What is this sermon about? Well, I don't know if you know this, but on the Bible app on your phone, if you use that app, I love it. I put verse of the day like on my home screen. So even before I look at the weather uh, and I know that tells you like I just operate like an old man. I wake up and look at the weather. But before I look at the weather, I see the verse of the day. Right. So my first interaction with my phone is through is with God's word. It's a really cool tool. Well, You can listen to the Bible uh, on uh, like your runs, if that's your thing, that's not mine, or your walks, which is more my speed. Uh, maybe you're working out at the gym. Maybe it's something else. You're on your way to work and your commute. You can listen to the Bible and it's a great way to get God's word in your heart. But on the Bible app, if you listen to Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 sequentially, it takes a little less than 20 minutes, like 17-ish minutes. Uh, which noted, number one, um, sermons that are good don't have to be long. <laughs> so I'm going to apologize to you, first of all, because this is going to be a long one. We're covering 16 verses uh, in Matthew chapter 5, and it's just a lot. Like we could teach on every verse a whole separate sermon. I'm not going to do that today. Now, I'm not Jesus, so his 20 minutes are going to take us two months, all right? So we're going to spend two months looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, all the way through, uh, where we'll find not a sermon full of random musings or vague platitudes like you might find in some modern church sermon contexts, but instead we find a cohesive sermon, one that maybe even Jesus planned to give and gave at this moment to his followers and to some crowds on this mountainside. And this cohesive sermon really points out one eternal truth. And I want you to see it. And I want you to kind of look at it closely because we're going to be coming back to this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But the point of the Sermon on the Mount was that we were made for a good life under the rule and reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. We're made for a good life under the rule and reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom, which, by the way, his kingdom looks nothing like any kingdoms of this world. It's quite upside down compared to kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God seems backwards. It seems unconventional. It seems countercultural as we listen to the words of Jesus in this sermon. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a guide to realizing and reclaiming the life that you were created for. So is there something missing in your life? Do you feel like you're just not quite there? Do you feel like you, you just need to work harder and then things will be better? Let me just tell you, Jesus' words here 
are where you will find life and blessing and fulfillment. One person said that this sermon is about how to live right side up in our upside down world. So let's get into it. You ready? Matthew chapter 5. We'll set up the context. Just read the first two verses. And before we get into the Beatitudes, which we just sang, uh, we'll stop at the end of verse 2. So chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1 and 2. Matthew writes of Jesus. He says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, and we're going to stop there, okay? This is the context, and if you back up into chapter 4, what you realize is that Jesus' popularity was growing rapidly. Like, he was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was performing miracles. People were being healed. People were coming from all over the region, from different little towns and cities, just coming to find Jesus. Maybe Jesus can help us. Maybe Jesus can heal my, my family member, my friend. Maybe Jesus can provide for this need. I mean, I hear he's a miracle man. I hear he's teaching these incredible truths. Let's just go hear what he has to say. Let's go be near him. Maybe we can be close enough. Something will happen. I'm not sure. It's kind of like if you can imagine Taylor Swift walking into Marshall High School, okay, uh, and, um, or wherever your place of work is, someone famous, something like that. It'd be pandemonium. Right? I mean, kids, these teenagers at the high school, if someone as famous as that walked in, they would be going insane. Like, I think, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think girls would be fainting. I think boys would be walking around like, you know, chest puffed out. Like, maybe she'll notice me, right? This is the kind of environment that Jesus was ministering in in the early days of his ministry because it was so otherworldly. He was making such an impact. Well, along the lines of beginning his ministry, he also called followers to come with him and to learn from him and to model their life after his as a disciple of him so that they could live in this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God that he was proclaiming. Now, I wonder if these brand new followers of Jesus didn't have a little bit of twinkle in their eye. I wonder if... As crowds came from all over the place just to get close to Jesus, just to hear what he had to say, just to maybe have him do something for them, I wonder if the disciples weren't thinking, oh yeah, we have made it. We're going to be famous, not fishermen, right? This is what we're going to be known for. Oh, life is going to be good from here on out. I can tell. And all the conventional wisdom of the world probably would have pointed them to that thought. But Jesus would have seen right through it. In fact, Jesus was after something so much better, so much bigger than a brief moment of fame. Jesus was building something eternal. And Jesus knew the kind of life that he was going to live for the next three years would not look to the world like a success. But looking back 2,000 years you can see that Jesus was right. So Jesus goes up on the hillside. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because he walked up the hill and people followed him up there. His disciples close by and other people from the crowds followed him up there. Uh, on the hillside, he sits down and begins teaching. I think he goes up to gain perspective for his followers. 
to show them what things are really supposed to be like. In the Gospel of Matthew, every time Jesus goes up a hill or up a mountain, which happens sequentially, like regularly through the Gospel of Matthew, he says something really important, like kind of world-shaking truth, or he points his disciples to eternity, to what the reality of their lives will be when Jesus returns and everything is made right again. And so both of those things are going to be true here in what we see. It's that these these uh, realities that Jesus talks about that are unconventional and sometimes backwards or upside down from the ways of the world are actually how we can have fulfillment in the here and now and forever. So this is what Jesus is talking about. He's answering the question for his followers, what will it be like really to be a follower of Jesus in this kingdom of God? What should these followers expect? What will be expected of them? And this is how this sermon begins. But he starts with one word. Now you've heard maybe the term beatitudes. I mentioned it earlier. We sang what's called the beatitudes. It's the blessed are, or that's how you say it in church. When I grew up, I just say blessed now. I hope that's okay because uh, I don't really talk like blessed. Uh, if you just hanging out over coffee or something, you're not going to hear me say that. You're going to hear me say blessed, okay? So blessed are but he starts with that one word. And I just kind of wonder, as a preacher, how he delivered it. I mean, there's no way for us to know, but it's such an important word. I, I kind of wonder if he didn't just like let it hang there for a minute, the very first word of his sermon, blessed. Because that word is more than just like life is going well. That particular word that Jesus used to begin his sermon meant quite a bit deeper of a meaning than just like things are good. It meant true, lasting happiness. It meant life was flourishing. And it meant that, you know, yes, things were good, but not in the way the world thinks about them. And we're going to see that as he lays out what these Beatitudes actually are. But isn't that what everybody's after? Can't you imagine the crowds and his followers Wanting to hear his truth from Jesus, and he launches the sermon with the word blessed, true, lasting happiness and satisfaction, fulfillment and flourishing, all that wrapped up in this one word. Don't you think they were on the edge of their seat going, yeah, yeah, Jesus, tell us. I mean, yeah, this, obviously you are popular. Obviously you have all this power. Tell us what we need to know. Give us the secret. And he does, but not in the way they expect Billy Graham said this, he said, we are like a restless sea, finding a little peace here and a little pleasure there, but nothing permanent or satisfying. Will our quest for true happiness ever be satisfied? He says the Bible declares a resounding yes, and it's in these eight beatitudes that Jesus points the way. So you can imagine the people on the hillside listening to Jesus on the edge of their seat, expecting him to reveal how they can be like hashtag blessed, right? How can I be as blessed as the Instagram uh, influencers? How can I have all the things that the, my neighbor down the street has? Jesus, can you just give me the secret to life and happiness? Can I be, you know, if you just show me that I'll do whatever it takes, just show me how to get there. Like, is there a secret sauce? And what he says turns everything they thought upside down. He, he tells them that the life of blessing is not about what you have. It's about how you live. He tells them that it's not something achieved, this life of blessing, but rather it's something received. He tells them that the blessings of God, as we mentioned, are both here and now and eternal, that it's a way of life in the present, but also in the future. 
And you need to know that as we read the Beatitudes because that's an important understanding. It's kind of like now and later candy. Does anybody like now and later candy? That's what I thought. This is my hypothesis. Nobody really eats now and later candy, but it's like cheap and so people get it in Halloween, uh, you know, and it's like the bottom of the barrel kind of thing. It's the last thing that anybody eats. Here's my, my uh, hypothesis. It's that it's not an instant gratification candy. I mean, we like, like M&Ms, right? Melt in your mouth, not in your hand. Like even before you eat them, they're starting to, you know, you know, you're good. Or I love Reese's peanut butter cups. It's like that first, but it's like it just, oh man, it's so good. But you put a now and later in your mouth and your first thought is, wait, is this candy? And you have to kind of let it sit there for a little while, right? I mean, it's in the name, now and later. It's like the longer you keep it in, the better it becomes, And so I think a lot of people just give up on it too soon. The blessing of God is like that. Jesus is going to outline that there are things that we might look at and go, is that a blessing? But if we live with it longer, we realize that it is the way to the good life, to lasting and true happiness. As one author described, Jesus' way uh, to the blessing of God It's kind of like a plowshare, cutting rows for the harvest. You know what happens? The plowshare wounds the earth with sustained deep cuts, overturning everything we thought we knew and exposing us all so the seed of life can be planted in us. So yeah, it may not look like a blessing according to the world's wisdom or way of thinking, Jesus turns it upside down and says there is a way to experience the blessed life, the blessing of God, eternal, lasting satisfaction. It's not what you thought. Maybe unexpected, maybe even hard, but ultimately good. And he starts where all spiritual things start, inside. He starts with our attitudes. He starts with the posture of our life. So look with me at the first four Beatitudes, verse three through six. And I wanna just give you a high, like a 30,000 foot view of each of these because we don't have time to go into each of them in depth. So verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So you see these challenges and these promises that come along with how Jesus talks about our interior life, the shape, the posture of our inner spiritual life in these first four Beatitudes. Let's talk about them briefly, poor in spirit. In a world where your personal credit score is thought to be a measure of human value, Jesus says, no, it's actually poverty, poverty of spirit that will be blessed, right? He's not talking about money. He's not talking about moping either. I mean, some people read that phrase poor in spirit and think we're just supposed to be down all the time, like, ugh, Eeyore, you know? That's not it at all. He's not talking about finances. He's not talking about just feeling like, you know, like Eeyore moping around, but rather D.A. Carson says it this way. It's talking about spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy. In other words, we don't have any spiritual cash. If, if I came to God and I pulled out my spiritual wallet, it would be empty, right? 
even more is if I came to God and he said, hey, you owe me, then I would have to go to a bank and try to get a loan, except I don't have any spiritual credit. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus also means that we don't have any spiritual debt. Jesus cancels that. So poor in spirit is a person who is keenly aware of their need for God, their inability to come to Him on their own, that they bring nothing to the table. I love it when I'm out in the community or hanging out, coffee shop or restaurant, whatever, I get to meet people, hang out with people. Um, I don't give like a pastor vibe right away unless you meet me here and I'm wearing a microphone. Then you go, oh yeah, he's a pastor. But if we're just hanging out, that's probably not the vibe you're going to get right away. But as we talk, you'll find out that I'm a pastor. And one of two things will happen typically to me when someone finds out I'm a pastor. First is that they apologize for something they said uh, recently that was maybe inappropriate or whatever it was because they think I can do something about it. You know, so uh, the second thing is this, is they'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, uh, that's great for you, but I'm not very religious. Now, we hear that all the time. Jill actually was with somebody last week who said, you know, I'm just not very religious. Do you know what Jesus would say to that? Jesus would say, good, good. Because when you know that you don't bring anything to the table with God, you are exactly at the point to receive his blessing. I mean, that's what he's talking about, poor in spirit. Like, I I can't do anything to make God happy. All I can do is come to him in my need. And that's when I receive the blessing. The kingdom of heaven is the blessing. And that's the theme of this whole sermon. So that's where he starts, the kingdom of heaven. That's how you enter. It's not achieved, it's received. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Now we think of mourning as like the least blessed times in our lives, the least happy times in our lives when we endure a personal loss. And yes, Jesus is comforting us in our time of personal loss. As the promise does say, they will be comforted. But what he's talking about here is not necessarily mourning through personal loss. What he's pointing towards is a bigger reality that the kingdom of heaven is coming and one day all sin and evil will be conquered. And so in the here and now, those who mourn over sin personally and the sin of the world, those who are sorrowful that we have to deal with this reality of evil are the same ones who will be Uh, will be comforted in the end when all evil is conquered because they're we're waiting god please come and do something this world is upside down i mean it's backwards it's like we're waiting for god to come and intervene because we hate what our world has to go through because of sin this is what it means to mourn those who are casual about sin are complicit with evil because the inverse of every beatitude is also true we studied the ten commandments recently and you remember that we talked about how when a commandment says thou shalt not that it also is implied thou shall or when it says thou shall it's implied thou shalt not same here in the beatitudes when jesus says those who mourn will be comforted he's also saying 
that those who do not mourn over personal sin, those who do not mourn over injustice in the world, those who do not take sin seriously, they will not be comforted in the end when all evil is conquered, but in fact will experience the worst kind of suffering. I mean, you just have to read the Psalms. You'll see this all throughout, time and time again, how evil people seem to have it made. It seems that evil people have it all. They've got the cars, they've got the goods, they've got the house, they've got the influence, they've got everything, and people who are trying to live a righteous life seem to be the ones who are suffering. But God's promise is to make eternal amends for His people. And along the same lines, God also promises that people who reject Him and pursue evil, who are casual about sin, will also be punished for eternity. It's just a reality. So blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. The blessed person isn't the person who just sweeps sin and injustice under the rug. The blessed person is the one who's honest and takes responsibility for sin and takes ownership over the effects of sin on this world. That's a hard road. It's like eating it now and later. You go, is this a blessing? But you know later is coming. It's a way to be fulfilled forever. That's why he uses that word comforted. And again, we don't achieve it, we receive it. Then he says, blessed are the humble. In our world, narcissism equals influence. I don't know if you noticed that. People who love themselves and attention equals influence. And that's generally how it works, whether you're in a corporate setting or an education setting uh, or whatever it is. Uh, That's just how things tend to to work but Jesus says kind of the opposite it's the humble it's the meek like the people who are strong but they're gentle it's those kind of people who are going to be blessed in other words he's saying the blessing of inheriting the earth means narcissism or whatever else besides humility that gains people power and influence that will not last humility is the only thing that will last for eternity it's these kind of people who take this kind of posture in life that will experience inheriting the earth well he's talking about the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god that experience here and now and also in the future when all evil is conquered and everything is made right this is a great place to interject just some theology about heaven what does the bible say about heaven What will we experience after we die? Now, TV and movies will tell you that we're going to be sitting on clouds, playing harps, and singing in an eternal choir. And some people actually have rejected God because they don't think that sounds fun. And guess what? That's not in the Bible. I mean, we don't become angels when we die. The Bible doesn't give us that that window. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Instead, here's what happens. Our eternal destiny is outlined clearly in the Bible, what God intended for humanity in the beginning, before sin entered the world, will be the reality for every Christian when all sin is, when all sin is conquered and judged. So, what God intended to, how to relate to men, to be with men and women before sin entered the world, to have that close relationship and to exist among us, to dwell with us, the Bible says, will be our reality after all sin is conquered and judged. And it says in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, at the very end of the Bible, it describes us clearly that God will remake the earth. As he created it in the beginning, he will recreate it. And what we think of as heaven in a spiritual sense will be conjoined with earth in a physical sense. 
an earth that is made new, an earth that will never end. And we will be with God and we will be building and we will be enjoying life on a new earth that never ends with no sin. I mean, we're talking about incredible reality that needs to be explored more in our churches and in our Bible reading. And so there's an incredible reward here that says the humble will inherit the earth. So we will enjoy life with God for eternity as partners with him. The Apostle Paul would use the phrase that we are co-heirs with Christ, meaning that we are invited not just to salvation, but into an eternal relationship with God where we partner with him both now and forever, forever to see heaven become a reality on earth. That's the gospel message. That's what this church is built on. And it all happens because of Jesus Christ, who was our sacrifice for sin, our savior from sin, and he'll be the eternal king forever. He's the center of it all. And that's why we exist. So humility is a posture that will be guaranteed blessing for here and now and forever. Now, countercultural, it's upside down. I gotta go faster. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, I'll just say this. We, we think about hunger and thirst as something like if I'm hungry because I'm an East Texan, if there's not food on my table, I'm going to go out and work for it. Okay, I'm going to go out and get it. I'm going to make it happen. But be careful when you apply that to your view of God. Because remember, the Beatitudes are this life of blessing that Jesus is, is telling us about is not something achieved. It's something received. And we know that even here because of the blessing that comes along with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. That's passive. That's something you receive. Uh, if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, it doesn't mean I'm going to go out and do all the good works I can and hope that eventually it'll add up to God accepting me. But rather, it's the inverse, is that I recognize righteousness only comes from God. It's a gift from him through Jesus Christ. And if I will just long for that, he will always give it. That's the kind of person that is blessed, is the kind of person who takes the internal posture of longing for God's righteousness to be received through Jesus Christ. And guess what? You long for that, you will never be disappointed. You will be filled. That's the promise. Now, We've covered the first four. There's four more, and then we're going to cover three or four more verses. So let's rock and roll, okay? Let me read for you verses 7 through 12, where we see that these internal attitudes, these postures, then begin to take shape in our life, our lives as priorities in the way we live. Listen to this, verse 7 through 12. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then Jesus gives us more on that last beatitude, more detail and information than any of the other ones. In verse 11, he says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad. Rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
let's just take these one by one briefly as well and recognizing also that the Beatitudes function in the entire Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount like a sort of table of contents. So each of these Beatitudes, as we study the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says and as he gives examples, we're gonna see further explanation and things that are extrapolated from these principles. Okay, so we're gonna, for the next two months, be jumping back to the Beatitudes, so don't feel like you're missing something. Just know it's going to go deeper as we go, okay? So merciful, blessed are the merciful. As people who have received the mercy of God, we give the mercy of God. It becomes the natural bend of our lives if we understand how much God has done for us we naturally want to do that for others. And you see how this is building from a place of being poor in spirit where I don't have anything. I can't bring anything to the table. Uh, a place of hungering and thirsting for righteousness that I can't provide it for myself. I can't go out and achieve it. I must be given it. A place of humility. All these things are adding together now to then flow out of us by showing mercy. And then there's this great cyclical process or the more we show the more we receive the more we show the more we receive it's it's this blessing of mercy God's mercy which we need then he says blessed are the pure in heart the pure in heart I think we kind of understand what purity is in terms of cleanliness but also we need to understand what he means by heart throughout the Bible the word heart is generally not referencing our organ it's referencing this totality of being. Like there's overlap between heart and mind and soul and strength and body. All this. You recognize even the words of Jesus as someone says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, looking back to the Old Testament, Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's saying that everything you are is wrapped up in this and so when he says pure in heart he's not just meaning that you have a good feeling inside or that you think good thoughts he's saying that everything about you the way you think the way you move the way you live your relationships are all coming from a place of purity not because you've earned it or achieved it but because God's given it to you because he's made you clean by faith in Jesus and so then you live a clean life with everything you are pure in heart they will see God. We're not hoping that the sum of our good deeds ultimately lead us to heaven. Our hope is in the purity of heart that's been given to us by Jesus. In fact, the Bible uses the word, er, theology uses the word of the Bible, imputed, meaning that Jesus' goodness, righteousness, purity has been given to us. It's been put in us by God in salvation so that now we see God because he sees us as he sees Jesus. That's the good news, the blessing that comes for the pure in heart. And then he says peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Isn't peacemaking like kind of out of fad right now? Um, most people who get famous right now are people of outrage. Do you recognize that? Have you seen this like on social media? Twitter's like the worst. Uh, I don't know, maybe Facebook, I'm not sure. But it's just like people are always mad about something. Everybody's always outraged. Here's the deal. Jesus says peacemakers will be blessed. And when you hear about peacemaker, maybe you're like me. You're thinking of a firearm, right, like a pistol. Or maybe you're thinking about someone who carries one of those for their job. 
And those are like the two things. Like one of them is about protecting the innocent. The other one's about punishing the guilty. Well, Jesus, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's not just talking about those two things separately, protecting the innocent or punishing the guilty. What he's talking about is bringing those people together in reconciliation and redemption, which, guess what, is exactly what he did for us. Because we were enemies of God in our sin. We were guilty. God was innocent. We could not have a relationship together. And so Jesus stepped into the middle, hung on a cross, paid the penalty for sin so that he could bring together through reconciliation and redemption the innocent and the guilty, restored relationship. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. And as we've experienced that from him, now we can live that out with others. There's nothing in this life that looks more like Jesus than restoring relationships between people through reconciliation and redemption. Now, this one's easily applicable because you can look around at your relationships and go, where's the broken relationship? And I guarantee you, you have one. So do I. How do we be a peacemaker? Because if we're poor in spirit, we're humble, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we want to show mercy, all of these things build up to where that gives us the ability to be peacemakers. So you see how these are building. And we're called sons of God because it makes us look like Jesus. And it's a way to partner with him in reconciling the world to God. Last beatitude. And then I think we're going to stop. Persecuted. Persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. This is, is a great irony. I want you to think about this. The qualities of the blessed life described by Jesus here are the same qualities that the world will curse. What do I mean? This is this upside-down reality, right? Think about it. Humility, gentleness, wanting right to win over wrong, showing mercy, being pure. Like if you were to build a, a, a fictional character based on these qualities, what would you get? You'd get every superhero from every comic book or a comic book movie, right? This is, this is what the world esteems in heroes of fiction. But in reality of history, you take all those and you wrap them up into a person and a person who exemplifies these kind of qualities, it's who the world attacks, I mean, yeah, we want that to be the person we all look up to, but in history and reality, this is who the world attacks. I mean, Jesus even says here, look back to the prophets of old. In the Old Testament, we see their story. Like, these guys were not respected. They were hated. They were telling the truth. They were loving people. They were pointing people to God. They were being gentle. Sometimes they were being a little less than gentle, but, you know, they were doing their best to live this way. They knew what God expected of them. And when they lived that way, they were attacked for it. Jesus is the prime example for this. We keep going back to Jesus. As he, as he preaches this sermon, he also embodies these realities. Jesus, the perfect, sinless example of all of these beatitudes, what happened to him? Unjustly murdered. A sham trial, a false accusation, uh, you know, a, a a politically driven arrest, all these things, none of them pointed to a reality of guilt in his life. He was perfectly innocent, did not deserve any of it, yet they put him on a cross and hung him as a criminal, though he was guiltless. He was innocent. But he did it willingly. And he recognized this reality that people who live this way 
the world attacks him. He's a perfect example of it. Even the early Christians for centuries after Jesus would have to deal with this reality that if you follow Jesus, people are going to be against you. Even today, around the world, people are sitting in underground rooms or basements or houses or they're sitting away. They're not public churches like the one we're sitting in today. And they're sharing stories of being persecuted for their faith. And you know how they're responding to it? I heard one pastor who was in China at an underground church, which is, they're not necessarily underground, they're just under the radar church. And he was meeting with a bunch of young adult Christians in China uh, who were living for Jesus and it just made, they, they drew attention, as Jesus would say in salt and light in verses 13 through 16. We're not going to quite get there, but you just, you make a difference. You draw attention to yourself when you live this way because you're different. You stand out, okay? And so these Christians were being persecuted. They were being, you know, detained by law enforcement in China. And they were having family members detained. And they were being interrogated. And here's how they responded, is they would get together and they would tell these stories and they would laugh, it was fun, not in a, like a sick way, but in like a we-know-who's-really-in-charge kind of way. They can't really hurt us. And that's why Jesus says here, do you know what to do when you're persecuted? When someone tries to snuff out the light of the gospel in your life, you know what you're supposed to do? Rejoice. Be glad. Be glad, because it puts you in good company. Throughout history, these are the people who have suffered for the cause of the kingdom of God. You're in good company when this happens, and it's pointing to the reality that Jesus ultimately wins. Here's a good example, and I'll close with this. Have you ever had trick birthday candles on your birthday cake? You guys, some of you haven't had enough fun in life. (laughs) Trick birthday candles. Here's how they work. I don't know the science of it. I'm not a scientist, but you light a birthday candle, that's a trick candle, birthday boy blows it out, out of breath, candle relights on its own. Has to do it again. Do you know what happens? Everybody in the room's having fun. They're laughing. Persecution is any attempt for someone to snuff out your light, to blow out the light of Jesus in your life. But do you know what? If you were in charge of your salvation, if you held your faith in your own abilities, you would be blown out and never come back. Persecution would devastate you. But Jesus holds your salvation. Jesus keeps you secure. Jesus provides strength for enduring whatever might come in this life so that you experience the fullness of blessing now and then forever into the next life. Jesus is in charge. We have nothing to fear. Do you know what happens when people try to blow out our light? comes back and it never stops coming back no matter how much they blow it out that's why we can be glad and rejoice in the face of persecution this is who jesus is and what he does for us so Haley's going to come back and Haley, maybe we can just sing that chorus could we do that for a time of response but i want to show you verse one and two again as she comes and lead you to a chance to respond today verse one and two When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to to teach them. Two words I just want you to notice. Crowds and disciples. There may be someone in this room 
who maybe it's by attending today, maybe it's out of curiosity, maybe it's because you like Jesus, maybe it's because your parents told you to come, whatever it is, you're part of the crowd. And you want to hear what Jesus has to say. But you're not close to him. You're not with him in the way that he wants to be with you. Because to become a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean just to like him or appreciate him or have it in my family history or whatever. To be a disciple of Jesus means to put faith in Jesus to the point that I give my life fully to Jesus because he gave his life fully for me. So the question is, who needs to move today from crowd to committed? And that's the question I want to leave you with because the result of faith in Jesus and a committed life of following him is true and lasting happiness, a life of flourishing that doesn't make sense to this world but will make sense now and forever for those who follow him. That's the invitation. We're gonna sing this chorus a couple of times and we've talked about a lot today but if you have a spiritual next step to take, I'm gonna make myself available at the back of the room. A couple of our other team members are available to you and even in just a couple minutes, we'd like to hear what God's doing in your life and help you take a next step. So I wanna invite you to stand. We're gonna respond to God through a chorus and give you a chance to ask a question or to be prayed for or to tell someone about what God's doing in your life and you can meet me at the back of the room. We say a brief prayer for us. God, thank you for your word. It is so rich and so deep, we cannot cover it all in our mere sermons. I pray that you would give us a love for your word that goes far beyond our walls on Sunday mornings. As we have taken the Lord's Supper together, I pray that we would be a people who proclaim Jesus outside of these walls. Lord, I pray for the person who might need to move from crowd to committed, that you would give them the courage to step up and do that, even now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.